And thank you, team, for leading us in music to worship God. Uh, worship, as uh, has already been said, is a um, multifaceted experience. Uh, music and, and um, other art forms are great tools for worship, but music is not worship. Music is a form of worship. Worship is a life that perceives the value of God and responds to that value. And so actually even hearing the word of God taught and reading it and praying our forms of worship, rearranging our priorities are worship. And so we're going to continue in worship by reflecting on where we've been and then turning our heads to where God is taking us uh, further on into hearing from him and into scriptures. I just mentioned that we uh, celebrated Easter Sunday last week. Um, it was a little different for us. We were sort of back in two services, which was kind of wild. Uh, it was a year and a half ago, almost two years ago, we actually all came together in one worship service, which was awesome. And uh, we needed to make some more space for Easter, which is cool, although it was pretty different to be in two services. I saw some of you sometimes and some of you others. It was a little weird, but it was also cool because we're celebrating the resurrection of Christ. And we sort of took a two-week break for Palm Sunday and Easter from our sermon series in the book of Philippians. We're going to pick that up and resume it this morning, but I think you're going to see that it wasn't really much of a break because the New Testament book of Philippians is all about finding life, finding joy in the fact that Jesus Christ is exalted, that he is resurrected. We actually stopped at a break in the book of Philippians at the end of chapter 2, and we pick up in chapter 3 here, and it actually begins saying, uh, finally, my brothers, it's as if the Apostle Paul is about to wrap up the book, but then he goes on for another couple of chapters, so he's not quite done yet. It's a nice natural break. But we pick up again celebrating the resurrection of Christ by looking this morning specifically at how we find joy in Christ, particularly as opposed to joy in ourselves. So I want to encourage you, if you've not uh, got your Bibles open already, to grab a Bible and turn to Philippians chapter 3. We're looking at verses 1 through 11 this morning. And while you're doing that and getting ready to, to turn there, let me ask a question. It's a question that's actually posed by this text. And the question is, where in your life and in your experience has confidence come from? Where has confidence come from? Uh, maybe you consider yourself a very confident and strong person. Uh, maybe you consider yourself anything but. <laughs> maybe you're a person that was once confident and has been sufficiently humbled by life that you're now actually mature and that's okay too. Wherever you're at on that confidence spectrum, we've all experienced times where we weren't really sure about ourselves or our ability to meet what was facing us, and hopefully we've all can think back, even if it was a long time ago, to some experiences that made us a little bit more confident that we have a positive future coming, that we're going to be okay. So the question is for you, where does that confidence come from? Of course, as I was thinking about that question this week, uh, I couldn't get Julie Andrews out of my head. And yes, all you fans of The Sound of Music uh, just started chuckling. I mean, I'm sitting there like trying to study the Bible and all I can hear is, I have confidence and confidence alone. <laughs> Besides, as you see, I have confidence in me. It was just stuck in my head and now it's stuck in your head. You're welcome. Because I was afflicted with it and misery loves company. No, I'm kidding. The Sound of Music is fine. I have nothing against Julie Andrews. <laughs> but actually, part of the reason I thought of that song was that song sort of poses an answer to the question. And, you know, if you know the story, her character was about to face something for her that was new and, and, and scary. And so she's trying to build up her confidence to face this new challenge. And she tries to find her confidence in me, which is 
pretty normal thing for people to do. But we've titled the sermon this morning, The Surprising Key to Confidence, because the Bible addresses this, tells us how to find confidence, and it's a little bit different than what we normally might think of. In fact, it's quite a bit different when we get into it. The passage starts in verse 1, chapter 3. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. The Apostle Paul says, I'm going to tell you again, rejoice in the Lord. Experience joy in Christ exalted. That's the dominant theme of this book. He's been talking about it ever since chapter 1. He's not going to stop talking about it till he's done. He, he realizes at some level he's repeating himself, but he says it's okay because we need the repetition. We need the repetition because we don't naturally rejoice in the Lord. We naturally seek to rejoice in other things. Now, that's kind of biblical language, rejoice in the Lord. But there's two immediate things that stand out to me when I hear that command. First of all, simply, it's a command. It's a command. This is something, as a Christian reading this, you and I are supposed to do. Um, Rejoice is just the verb form of the word joy. (laughs) Experience joy in the Lord, okay? So that's something I'm supposed to do. So apparently, you and I have a fair bit of control over whether or not we are experiencing joy in the Lord. And I admit, sometimes that's a little bit of a surprising thought to me. I I don't always feel like I'm in control of whether I'm feeling happy or feeling sad, whether I'm feeling joy or not. Sometimes I can tend to think that I, I, I don't really have full control over that. That's more of a function of circumstances outside my control. But here's the Bible saying, find joy in Christ, meaning that's something you and I can do. And secondly, it's worth noting, it says, rejoice in the Lord. Now, that's one of those kind of religious Bible-y kinds of phrases that you're not surprised when you see it in the Bible. In the Lord, in the Lord. It's like at the end of our prayer saying, like, in Jesus' name, amen. And we don't think sometimes about what what that phrase in Jesus' name means. You know, rejoice, rejoice in the Lord. Yeah, yeah, that's a Bible word. It's easy to skip over. And yet, the Apostle Paul, who's originally writing this in the first century, is not just throwing in little religious catchphrases. Rejoice in the Lord, that is in Jesus. Find your joy in Jesus as opposed to other places. That's what he's telling us to do. And so right away, we see the point. This is really the point of the whole sermon, so after this next 30 seconds, you can tune me out. No, please don't do that. But but this is really the point, right in verse 1 of the whole paragraph that we're looking at this morning. Real, pervasive, life-transforming joy comes from putting my confidence in Christ rather than in my own ability. Now, that's a lot of words, but they're important. This is, the, this is the essential message of the entire book of Philippians. Real, that is, this isn't just some religious pie-in-the-sky sort of dreamy thing, like real-life joy. It's pervasive joy. That means it touches every area of life, and it's persistent. It doesn't go away. And it is life-transforming joy, joy that is so deep, it will radically reorient your priorities in life and make you a different person. That kind of joy is not only real, but it comes from, and this is the, the action part, this is where you and I come in, it comes from choosing to place my confidence in Jesus, not in myself. The contrast between those two, putting confidence in my Lord instead of in myself, is really what the rest of this passage unpacks. It divides neatly into two parts. Verses two through six is all about what it means and looks like in very practical terms to put confidence in me. And then verses seven through 11 are all about what it means in very real and practical terms to put confidence in Jesus. And we're exhorted to put our confidence in Jesus, not ourselves, so that we might experience pervasive, transforming joy. 
So we look at this first part. The confidence the Apostle Paul talks about that he himself once placed in himself. And he describes what that looked like and experientially how that worked for him. And what we're going to see him describe, and you heard Jordan read it earlier, it's very first century Jewish cultural and religious stuff. Uh, Now, we're 21st century, Uh, we're not Middle Eastern, we're not Near Eastern, most of us are not Jewish, so a lot of the details are fairly foreign to us, but it's really not that hard to understand what he's driving at. What he's saying is, in his day and in his, his age, with his people, there was a way to be successful if you did certain things, and he did them all. And it's not that hard to understand that we, too, have similar ways to be successful. The details look different, but the issue is the same. He begins those first couple verses, verses 2 and 3, warning the members of the first century church in the ancient city of Philippi against uh, people who would come in, uh, evildoers he calls them, and mutilate the flesh. What he's really talking about there is a group of people that readers uh, who are familiar with the New Testament will have heard before. They're often referred to by historians as the Judaizers. That is, they were Jewish people who had uh, many of them become Christians, they believed that Jesus Christ was really the Savior that God promised in the Old Testament, but they said, now that you believe in Jesus, you still have to follow all the rules and regulations that are in the Old Testament law. You've got to do it all, because that's still God's word. So it's great that you believe in Jesus and that he died for your sins, but now you have to follow all the rules of the law, or you can have no confidence in your standing before God. Now the Apostle Paul calls this putting confidence in the flesh, Um, that's the phrase that we see repeatedly in the New Testament, confidence in the flesh. That's just a first century way of saying, like, confidence in myself. That's how we would say the same thing today. Confidence in myself, confidence in my ability. He says, if your confidence that God loves you and will accept you comes from your ability to keep all of the rules and regulations of the Old Testament, then you're trusting yourself. You're not trusting God. So you've got to watch out for those people. And then he says in verse 3, the, the contrast, the alternative, is those that really worship God glory in, that is, put their confidence in him, in what he's done, not in themselves and what they've done. And so for the rest of the passage now, he's going to unpack this distinction a bit for us. In verses 4 through 6, he says, you know, when it comes to this confidence in the flesh thing, especially for a first century Jewish context, a confidence in me thing, he's like, I've been there, I've done that, I got the t-shirt and it's not worth it. I'm here to tell you. I've been to the top of that mountain, and the view is lousy. It's not worth it. That's what he's really after. Verses four through six, he lists numerous things that set him apart amongst his people in his day as a real achiever, and they really amount to to essentially two things. He says, I had the right a heritage, the stuff that I wasn't in control over. I was born uh, Jewish. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, uh, the tribe of Israel's first king, Saul. Um, I, I, was, I was raised in a Hebrew-speaking home, so I have touch with the Hebrew language, which is the language the Old Testament was written in. So I, I mean, I, like in terms of my heritage, I was set up to have it all. I was born with the proverbial silver spoon in my mouth. <laughs> Everything was set up for me to be a winner. But it wasn't just my heritage, it was also my performance. The last several things he lists, uh, starting in the middle of uh, verse 5, he says, As to the law, I was a Pharisee. Verse 6, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Uh, As to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. You know what he's saying? He's saying, I did it all. 
I did it all. I'm not just a guy that inherited good things from my parents or my ethnic background and so I just coasted through life. I grabbed every advantage I had and I went for it. And I outperformed virtually everybody. If there was a degree out there, I had it. If there was an accolade out there, I won it. If there was a position out there, I attained it. I outstripped everybody. I didn't just graduate in the top 10% of my class. I was the valedictorian. I was that guy. And so everything that the Apostle Paul lists here is what achievement and success looked like for people in his first century Jewish context. And he says, I had it all. I had it all. But it didn't fill me with joy. Now, although the details are pretty different, we have standards in our day, too, of what a successful person looks like. And it's not hard to see that. Whether you're from a religious background or not, actually, there are very common standards of success and, and pictures of success that float around in our culture, and we pick them up sort of just like it's, it's, in the, it's in the water supply, you know? It's just part of the air that we breathe. For those of us who are of a more churched uh, background, especially if you're a, uh, from an evangelical Christian background, uh, often the things that we're all called to do as Christians easily become standards by which we measure our own success and in which we place our confidence. Good things, biblical things, like do you pray every day on your own? Do you have a time set aside where you are praying to God? Do you attend church regularly? Is that a priority or do you just kind of squeeze it in when you don't have something better going on? for me, I make church a priority and I invest in relationships when I'm there. I don't just come check out the box and sit there passively. Like, I'm, I'm doing what God has called us to do. Staying faithful to our marriages if we're married. Sharing the gospel of Jesus with people who don't know him. All of these kinds of things and many, many others are clear commands in Scripture and they can become a basis for confidence that I have, that I'm good, and I'm going to experience joy with God. Now, just before we move on, let me point out that the Apostle Paul isn't suggesting that we shouldn't do any of these things. Actually, he and other biblical authors all over the place constantly exhort us to do exactly those things. Uh, to pray, to pray without ceasing the Bible tells Christians, to not forsake gathering together, to make the gathering of your local church community a priority. I mean, if I'm a Christian and I'm not praying regularly, I'm disobeying God. It's just kind of hard to escape that reality. I've got to do something with that. If I'm a Christian and I have not prioritized my involvement in my local church, I'm disobeying God. That's what the Bible says. It's not hard to figure out. If I'm a Christian and I'm not sharing the gospel, I'm disobeying God. These are all things that we're called to do. And the issue here isn't whether or not we do these things. What this passage is about is whether we put our confidence in those things. Do you see the difference? There's this assumption that if I'm a Christian, I'm extending myself to do these things. But even if I'm successful, and maybe perhaps especially if I'm successful in prioritizing prayer or church attendance or giving and serving and loving people or whatever the thing may be, that I feel good about who I am and I seek to find my joy in the fact that I have an intact family. I'm a regular churchgoer. I'm somebody who prays, so I have confidence that I'm good before God. Ooh, be careful. <laughs> the Bible says, 
Be careful. Don't put your confidence in your ability to execute the plan, even if it's a biblical plan. But you know, it's not just religious people that have to deal with this. Uh, There are secular versions of this as well. Certainly, uh, as America becomes an increasingly post-Christian society where more and more people around us aren't necessarily looking to the Bible first to kind of set their parameters of what life is all about, many of us seek to put our confidence in ourselves. In ourselves. I was interested this week in the course of preparing for this morning to run across an article from Psychology Today in which the author a PhD psychologist, listed 17 ways to help you increase your confidence. 17 very specific, concrete things you can do to decrease your confidence. So this will be interesting. Well, I'm not going to take the time to read them all, but I'll give you a representative sample. Uh, He suggested things like eating healthy, you know, so that you feel better and you feel better about how you look. Uh, Exercising regularly. Again, you feel better about how you look, but you also get the positive endorphins going. I mean, you give lots of good reasons to do these things if you need to increase your confidence. He also included other things in his list, like um, he said, pick a thing or two that you've been procrastinating and putting off and just do them. Just do something you've been procrastinating so that you can have a sense of accomplishment and achievement. You know, you're not being pulled down by uh, your inability to accomplish things. Uh, another thing he said, make, two, make yourself two lists. Uh, On one list, write down all of your strengths as a person. No weaknesses, just your strengths. On the other list, write down all of your accomplishments, things you've achieved. Just list them out. And then every morning when you get up, read both lists before you go out in the morning so that you're thinking more positive. You're not just getting into the, like, I'm a loser kind of mentality, you know? And on and on this list went. Now, again, actually, many of the suggestions that were on that list are probably pretty good pieces of advice. Um, the issue that the Bible is bringing up here is not whether or not we would ever do something like that. I mean, certainly eating healthy and exercising and ending procrastination are probably good advice for all of us, right? (laughs) There's a lot of good stuff there. The issue isn't whether or not that stuff is right or wrong. The issue is, is that what's going to build my confidence? Am I going to trust in that to build my confidence? But of course, psychology today is a secular source. There's, there's no God in, in its worldview, and therefore there's no God or supernatural in the advice that you're going to get from a source like that. So even if there are many good practical suggestions, you're going to be told some form of, you've got to put your confidence in you. Let me help you figure out how to do that. So whether we're from a religious background or even a secular non-religious background, we can all very easily get trapped in putting our confidence in ourselves. That's why the Apostle Paul started this uh, chapter by saying, I don't have a problem telling you to rejoice in the Lord again because it's safe for you. It safeguards you. Why would it safeguard us? Because our default is to put confidence and seek to find joy in ourselves. That's why. That's where we go, whether we're religious or not. We want to find confidence in us. He says, I want you to find confidence in Jesus. I think I just switched sides of the stage, didn't I? Jesus was over here. Okay, I got to get that right. Sorry about that. (laughs) So, he says, this is what I did to find confidence in myself in my first century religious world. But now he's going to show us the contrast in verses 7 through 11. He says there's another way, there's a much better way. In fact, before we even get into what the way is, look at what he says about how much better it is in verses seven and eight. He says, this is so much better. On the one hand, he says, I succeeded fantastically according to the standards of my people. Been there, done that, got the t-shirt. But then he says, guys, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. In fact, in the end of the day, it's not worth anything compared to where real joy comes from. Now that I've experienced both, I can tell you, don't waste your time on this one. You want to put your confidence 
in Jesus. Verses 7, he says, whatever gain I had, all those accolades, all those achievements, all that position, he says, I now count it as loss for the sake of Jesus. I'd rather lose that if I gain what Jesus offers me. Which, by the way, is kind of interesting. That means Jesus offers him something other than a religion that says, follow all the rules and be a good boy and then you'll go to heaven. Jesus offers something else. He says, indeed, he goes on, um, I, verse 8, I count everything as loss because of, listen to the language, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. There is nothing worth more. There's nothing more beautiful. There's nothing more valuable than actually knowing what Christ has to offer. That was such an experiential reality for him at this point in his life that it radically reoriented his priorities and changed the trajectory of his entire life. That's how powerful gospel joy is. So he finishes out verse 8, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish, trash, garbage. All the trophies, all the gold medals, all the accolades, all the accomplishments, all the pats on the back, all the big fat paychecks, all of the wonderful holidays with a beautiful family. He says, you know what? All of it is like nothing. It's just garbage. I throw it all away so that if Jesus costs me some of those things, at one level, you could call it a sacrifice. At another level, it's not a sacrifice because all I'm doing is getting rid of trash to get something so much better. You see his point? In comparison, this isn't just a matter of right and wrong. You shouldn't put confidence in your flesh, Christian. You should put it in Jesus. That's true, but that's not really the focus here. The focus is like, why would you want to put confidence in your flesh? It's garbage. I've been to that mountaintop. The view stinks. Don't waste your time climb this mountain instead. So what is this mountain? What does it mean in practical experiential terms to put confidence in Jesus? Well, for the next couple of verses, he unpacks some of what that means, and from it we can distill three essential things that it means to find our confidence in Christ. It means, I'll just list them, then we'll go back through them here in verses uh, 9 through 11, to experientially trust his righteousness rather than my own. Second, to experientially rely on his spirit to change me rather than my own strength. And then thirdly, to live sacrificially on mission. Let's look at each of these in turn. First of all, what does it mean to put my confidence in Jesus? The Apostle Paul says in verse 9, he says, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, meaning I followed all God's rules and I, I did it really well. I pray, I go to church, I have a good marriage, I give regularly, I share the gospel, so therefore I'm, that's what, he says, no, 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 that's not the kind of righteousness Jesus gives me. Instead, it is the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, and he repeats himself, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that is trusting Jesus. So here's the weird thing. He says, as a Christian, I actually live a much more righteous life than I used to. I live more the way God wants me to, but I place no confidence, like I have more righteousness than ever before, but I place no confidence in it. I place all of my confidence in the righteousness that comes from God and that depends on just trusting simply in him. We talked about this last Sunday on Easter Sunday from Titus chapter three. One of the, the things that this produces when, when the righteousness, relying on Jesus' righteousness that he gives me 
is not only something I believe, because I'm a Christian, so I believe the gospel, and I say, yes, Jesus died for my sins, I believe that, but it's actually the experiential reality of my life, which I think is a little more elusive for some of us. Like, every day, I am conscious mentally and emotionally of the fact that I bring nothing to the table, and I am considered completely righteous in God Almighty's eyes simply because of who Jesus is and what he did. That's why we put that word experientially trust up there. It's the daily experience of my life that I'm totally reliant upon his righteousness. Some incredible things start to happen the more that becomes true of your life. One of them is I'm now free to really truly confess my sins because now blowing it is no longer an existential threat to my happiness. You see, here's one of the crazy things that happens. The harder I try to live for God and do the right thing on my own and put my confidence in that, say, God, I'm doing it the right way. I'm doing it the way you want. Well, the problem is I'm never going to do it all perfect because every human being is a sinner. So what I start to do, and sometimes I'm really conscious of this, other times I probably don't even realize I'm doing it, but we get tempted to start defining down God's standards, right? I mean, I did tell a little white lie a couple months ago that I remember, but man, I know people that lie every day, and I'm better than them. God does great on a curve, right? I hope, because there's no way I could never, ever tell a lie. I know I really have bitterness toward my spouse, but you know, I'm really kind to a lot of other people, and I know people who are just mean and ugly and bitter all the time, and I'm much better than them. You see, we start to, I have to define down what God's standards are so that I can feel good about myself, and alternatively, or sometimes at the same time, I define up my performance. (laughs) Oh, sure, I'm not perfect, but I'm a pretty good guy. I mean, I read some pretty awful stuff in the newspaper, and Real people are doing that stuff. I'm like, I would never do that. So, okay, I'm not perfect, but I'm a pretty good person. And it's, I'm starting to define my own performance up. Like everybody else objectively is looking at me going, you're not dealing seriously with some of your own character flaws here, buddy. Um, and on the other hand, I'm trying to define God's standards down, and I'm trying to make those two meet in the middle because I need to. I need to. I have to be okay with God. And if it's all in my performance, then I have to make those two mesh. But you see, when my righteousness is in Christ, and I'm totally relying on that, I'm free to say, you know what? Loser. (laughs) I'm good with that. I mean, I'm not good with that like I'm okay being a sinner, but I'm totally free to admit I am a sinner. I fall so far short of God's glory. And I can say that. I can call my sin what it is. And when somebody else points out in my life sin that I don't even see, I'm free to say, oh, man, that is hard to hear. But you are right. You are right. That is sin. And I can just bring it to God so that I can confess it and that he can cleanse it. And I'm free to do all that because my confidence is not based in my righteousness. I know that Jesus already died for that sin. So I'm free to face it because it's already been defeated. And what that produces is actually a humility Believe it or not, it produces humility rather than arrogance. Uh, Several years ago, this point was brought home to me um, in a conversation I had with a coworker. I was in uh, graduate school. I was in seminary at the time getting ready to um, head into full-time pastoral ministry, but I wasn't working at a church yet. I had a a secular job. I actually worked for the city of Gresham for a couple of years. Uh, In the planning department, I got into a conversation one day with one of the city planners, 
and this was like over 20 years ago. I, the, the only reason I remember the conversation at all was I said something and he was totally shocked by it and I was surprised by his shock <laughs> and, and the whole thing, that's why I remember it. Um, this was a guy who had been raised in Nigeria in a Catholic, a West African Catholic home. He finished his education and most of his career here in the U.S., but he'd grown up in a West African Catholic context. And so we got talking about, and I told him I was in graduate school to go into ministry or whatever, and he had some vague context for that. So we were kind of talking about some of our common you know, experiences or whatever. And at one point in the midst of that conversation, um, he was describing to me kind of what it meant to be a Christian, really, um, is what we were talking about. And he was saying things like, you know, he, I, he pretty much just would go to the Catholic church as often as his family took him. And... Um, you know, listen to whatever the priest said, because the Catholic priest was his only way of knowing what God wanted. He'd never, he clearly never actually opened or read the Bible for himself, even though he's a very educated guy. Um, he just listened to what the priest said and, and, and do his best to follow what the priest told him to do. And so you had all these things you needed to do within that Catholic context to have your sins absolved. And, and you know, if you die, at the end of the day, you just try to, you try to live right, you try to do what the church tells you to do. And you kind of hope that's good enough for God. That was pretty much his view of what it meant to live as a Christian. And what I said to him that shocked him so much, and it surprised me that it shocked him until I figured it out, is, what I said is, you know, I have total and absolute confidence. There's not a lick of doubt anywhere in my mind that when I die, God will embrace me with open arms as a son and welcome me into glory for all eternity. And his reaction, like he literally flinched a little bit and his face scrunched up and he looked at me and he's like, I'm like, what did I just say? <laughs> Is there something on my face that's really embarrassing? I just, you know what? And he, and he kind of goes, how, how could you, like how could anybody say that? And he was sort of uncomfortable with the way he said it. And anyway, it, long story short, it finally dawned on me what he heard me say. <laughs> Here's what I thought I said. Here's what he heard me say. What he heard me say was, I know that pedestrian, low-life riffraff like you have to work hard at it, but I'm such a holy person that when I get to heaven, God's going to be so happy I showed up because I'm just going to make heaven so much of a better place, right? Like, that's what he heard me saying. He thought I was saying, I have no doubt God will accept me because my righteousness is so high. He assumed I was putting my confidence in the flesh. And when I realized that, I was like, no, 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 that's not what I mean. <laughs> and so I had to back up and kind of explain to him. I said, listen, it's not because of me at all. I actually know my sin very, very well. I know that Christ, uh, God will accept me because of who Christ is and what he has done. And he was a little puzzled by that. And I said, well, you're Catholic. You believe that Jesus is the son of God and died on the cross for sins, right? He said, yeah. I said, what do you think that means? I don't know. I'd have to ask the priest. I said, well, the priest isn't here. He's back in Nigeria. You tell me. What do you think it means? I mean, and he hadn't thought about it. Why did Jesus have to die if he didn't pay the penalty for our sins? And doesn't that have implications? That was a new thought for him. So we need to move on. How do I rejoice in the Lord? First, by putting my confidence in Jesus' atonement rather than my own ability to avoid sin. That frees me to be truthful, honestly confessing sin. It also leaves me brimming with confidence and yet totally humble at the same time because it has nothing to do with me. The alternative is to not be brimming with confidence, but to have to build yourself up in arrogance because it's all about us. The Apostle Paul says Christ's way is much better. Secondly, what does it mean to rejoice in the Lord? It means to experientially 
trust in God's power to change us rather than our own power to change us and our willpower. Verse 10, he continues with his description of this Jesus trusting life. He says that I might know him and the power of his resurrection. Boy, so much packed into that phrase. Maybe the best way to unpack it briefly is just to turn one book to the left. Keep a finger in Philippians and turn back to the book of Ephesians, just a couple pages to your left. Ephesians chapter 1, where the same Apostle Paul is praying a prayer for Christians in the ancient city of Ephesus. By the way, if you don't know what to pray for somebody, just open up Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, and pray that prayer for them. It'll work every time, okay? In the heart of this prayer, he begins Ephesians chapter 1, um, verse 16. He says, this is the thanks and the prayer that I have for you that you would um, uh, know and understand who Christ is. Verse 18, he says, I want you to have the eyes of your heart enlightened. He says, I want you to get how awesome our salvation is because he says to these Christians, they're Christians, you already have this salvation, but you don't experientially you know, understand it yet. It's not part of your daily experience. And so he says, I want, I want you to know the hope that you have in the glorious inheritance. Now look at verse 19. He says, I want you to know the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe. You know what he's saying there? He's saying God Almighty has supernatural power, obviously. But what's really amazing with this is he said it is power toward us. It's aimed at us. That means when I'm a Christian, God loads up his like divine bazooka and he puts me in the crosshairs and he pulls the trigger and zap. God's power is to me. It is in me. It's doing something in me. Elsewhere, the Bible describes this as the Holy Spirit of God moving into my life when I become a Christian. God takes up residence inside me and begins supernaturally transforming me. And how much power are we talking about here? Verse 20, it's the same power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Friends, there's a supernatural miracle we celebrated last Sunday. Jesus Christ was physically dead, dead in a doornail, dead as anybody's ever been dead. And he was dead for a while, a couple of days. But at the end of that couple of days, he wasn't dead anymore. That is the supernatural power of God overriding the rules of, of nature that he himself wrote in a miraculous and not necessarily common and repeatable way. That's a supernatural miracle by which Jesus, who was dead, became alive again. He said that kind of power is the very same power at work changing you and changing me. Whoa. Is that the experiential reality you have as a Christian? Am I being that freed from sin, having my priorities rearranged that dramatically? Because that's what God's Holy Spirit is doing in us. Over in Colossians, I'll just read this to you, one book to the right of Philippians, actually. The Apostle Paul says experientially how this works in his own ministry. He says, for this end I toil, I, I, I labor, I work struggling with all of God's energy that he powerfully works within me. You see the language? He says, as I'm living for God, I'm doing it. I have discipline, I extend myself, I sacrifice, I study, I serve, I pray, I learn, I give, but I'm not doing it according to my own strength. I'm doing it according to God's strength that is within me. There is this divine human cooperation that he's talking about here. God's spirit takes up residence within my life and changes me. But here's the thing. I can try to live for God on my own or I can try to live in cooperation with him. The Bible also says elsewhere we can quench God's spirit. 
the word picture changes there a little bit. It's like the Spirit of God is building a fire within us that changes us, but we can just dump a huge bucket of water on that. As Christians, you and I have a terrifying power to thwart through non-cooperation the work of God's Holy Spirit in our lives. But friends, understand that every moment of every day, if you are a Christian, the Spirit of God is within you, supernaturally changing you to make you more like Jesus. Are you cooperating or are you doing it in your own strength? Now, what does it look like to cooperate with the Spirit on a daily basis? Well, it looks like a thousand things that we don't have time to get into this morning. So let me just say this. Let me say this much. It begins with assumption and prayer. Here's the assumption. Assume God has a plan for everything. Okay? Again, understand, this is just the beginning of a conversation. There's much more to say about it, but we can say this much this morning. Assume God has a plan for anything, even if, perhaps especially if, you have no idea what the plan is. Maybe in somebody else's life, you see them suffering and you just don't get it. You're like, God, how could that happen? Or maybe in your own life, you're like, God, I'm trying to serve you and yet everything just looks like it's blowing apart and and I don't understand it. Assume God knows what he's doing, even if you have no idea. Be careful of trying to figure it out, but assume he's got it figured out, right? He's there. He's doing something. He's either doing something in you, using that negative circumstance to change who you are, or he's doing something through you. Maybe God is helping you have a difficult time for somebody else's benefit so that they can see what a real Christian looks like when they rely on Jesus. Maybe it has nothing to do with you. It has something to do with somebody else. Or maybe it's both. Or maybe it's something else. I don't know. But assume that the sovereign God knows what he's doing. That's the assumption. Then the prayer. Ask him to teach you what you need to learn. If there is anything. Sometimes there is. Sometimes there isn't. But if there's something, God, help me see it and help me learn it. Ask him what he needs you to do whether there's something there specifically for you to do or not, and ask him to change you so that you resemble him. So assume God's doing something and ask him to teach us and show us what to do and change us so that we will more fulfill his purposes. That's only the beginning of an answer of what does it mean to cooperate with God's spirit, but it will start to change the way you respond to different circumstances in your life. It reorients the perspective away from, I don't like this, I'm unhappy about this, this should be different, to God, who are you and what are you doing and how do you want me to change? What a beautiful thing when that happens. By the way, I want to encourage us as we go this week, I've got to move on to our last point, but I want to encourage us um, to talk about what that looks like in your own experience. If you're a Christian and you've learned something about what it means to cooperate with the Holy Spirit of God, share that around your lunch tables this afternoon. And community life group leaders, some of the suggested discussion questions you were sent for your discussions this week kind of focus in on that. We can kind of share with one another times where we've had experience of what it looks like to walk with the Holy Spirit and cooperate with his power in our lives. We can learn a lot from one another, so I encourage us to do that. How do I rejoice in the Lord? First, by putting confidence in Jesus' atonement rather than my own inability to avoid sin. Second, by, putting, um, my, by relying on his spirit to change me rather than my own power. Lastly, by living sacrificially on mission. To rejoice in the Lord, to put my confidence in Jesus, means to live sacrificially on mission. Look how he ends this, uh, second half of verse 10. He said that I want to know him in the power of his resurrection and that I might share in his, that is Jesus' sufferings, becoming like him in his death. So that by any means possible, 
I may attain the resurrection from the dead. I want to experience, the Apostle Paul is saying, my own version, whatever version God has ordained in my life, of Jesus' sacrificial life so that I might experience his resurrection life. I want to experience a sacrificial death that I might also experience his resurrection life. What the Apostle Paul is getting at there is that Jesus Christ himself is the model for what it means to be a Christian. He was God. He left it all. He sacrificed that the message of God might be accomplished and proclaimed. The message of God is that he himself would die for our sins. He himself would take our place. He himself would fix our sinful hearts and guarantee for us an eternity in heaven with him that we could never guarantee on our own. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That's what Jesus came to not only accomplish, but to proclaim, to announce. And he did it through suffering and personal sacrifice. He now sends us out on the same mission. He says in John 17, the night before he dies to his apostles, to his disciples, just as the Father sent me in the same way, so I now send you. You go out into the world, you extend yourself, you live, you sacrifice, you embody the gospel and how you interact with people and you proclaim the gospel and so that people know who Jesus is and how to find forgiveness of sins. That's why we reach out to local schools. That's why we reach out to refugees. That's why we reach out as a church to try to make an impact on the hurting and the needy in our community, not just to meet their needs, although certainly it is an act of love. The greatest act of love is to embody the gospel, the God who extended himself to meet every need that we have, including the need for eternal salvation and forgiveness of our sins. We have a here and now culture That's our problem. We're steeped in a middle to upper middle class suburban American world here in the western suburbs of Portland, Oregon in the 21st century that moves fast, it has fun, it lives for experiences, it builds, uh, sets goals and achieves them and it builds personal kingdoms. That produces an inordinate pressure to be at every soccer game, to have all the latest stuff, to have cool pictures to put up on Facebook, to keep up with the Joneses in a thousand different ways. And it also tends to produce crushing disappointment when life gets hard and doesn't go according to my plan, when my kids don't want to talk to me anymore, when my marriage falls apart, when I lose my job, when my health changes so that I can't do all the stuff I want to do. If my confidence is in the kind of life that I can build for myself according to the standards of my culture, I'm always in danger of disappointment. But he says the last part of putting our uh, joy in Christ is to have confidence in living on mission to make Jesus known in actions and in words. I can think of no better way to illustrate this than to listen to the words of Adoniram Judson. We'll kind of turn the corner here and end with this. Some of you know who Adoniram Judson uh, was. He was uh, the first, pretty much the first missionary sent from America. He was born in Massachusetts, and in the early 1800s, he got a heart to go uh, serve God in India. Uh, at the time, an almost completely Hindu nation where the gospel of Jesus was very uh, little known. He happened to meet a sweet young lady named Anne and want to marry her and take her with him. Here's the deal. Missions work is pretty arduous today. It was really arduous back then. It took months by boat to get there. Um, they were going to be in a different climate. There were diseases that they were going to have to face. They were going to be totally unwelcome because they're preaching a different message. There was no guarantee of even their safety. And so when Adoniram Judson asked his would-be father-in-law for his blessing on his daughter's hand in marriage, 
he couched it in some pretty incredible terms. He asked his father-in-law for permission to marry his daughter, Mary Ann, in a letter, and that letter still survives today. Let me read you an excerpt of this young, soon-to-be missionary asking his future father-in-law for his daughter's hand in marriage. He says, Sir, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. There was no guarantee they were ever going to get to come back to the U.S. Whether you can consent to see her departure to a heathen land and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life. Can you bless that, Dad, for your little girl? Whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps even a violent death. All of those things were possibilities. Can you consent to all of this for the sake of perishing immortal souls? For the sake of Zion and the glory of God. Can you consent to this in hopes of soon meeting your daughter again in the world of glory? With a crown of righteousness that is brightened by the acclamations of praise that shall redound to her Savior from heathens saved through her means from eternal woe and despair. Can you have a big enough vision for your life to see people in India who don't know Jesus find eternal life that you would part with your own desires to be with your daughter and your grandkids? Who are you living for, sir? Are you living for yourself here and now or are you living for the kingdom? I asked my father-in-law for permission to marry my wife. It had vision in the request, not that much vision. (laughs) How did her father respond? He ultimately looked at his daughter and said, what do you think? Anne said, I'm all in. Dad blessed the union. Adoniram and Anne were married. They left for India. They eventually settled in Burma, where Adoniram Judson spent over 40 years proclaiming the gospel to Buddhists who had never heard of Jesus' love. Twelve years of hard work and illness followed, including the miscarriage of their first child, and Adoniram's eventual imprisonment and torture for over a year and a half during a war between Britain and Burma. The Burmese suspected him of being a spy, even though he was American, not British, but he was white and he spoke English, so they didn't trust him, and they incarcerated him and they tortured him for over 20 months. During this time, Anne's life can only be described as Herculean. This period of almost two years, she was fighting her own illnesses. She was repeatedly uh, being struck with fevers from the climate that she did not grow up in. Uh, She was caring for a child that was born while Adoniram was in prison. He hadn't even seen his new child yet. She's caring for the infant. She was also working tirelessly for his release, going from office to office, burning through constant red tape and being stymied by the bureaucracy everywhere, all the while living alone in a foreign country in which she could not Skype or email home. She had no contact (laughs) with anybody to help her. Eventually, the war ended. Adoniram was half-starved, but alive and released. And not long after that, Anne succumbed to illness and died at the age of 37. 
her father never did again see her in this life. But he did many years later in glory. It's not a wasted life. It's a life lived sacrificially on mission. Now, friends, you don't have to move to a foreign country to have that kind of life. In fact, if many of us did not stay and fund missionaries, they couldn't be there. But whether I am there or whether I'm here is not the issue. The question is, am I living sacrificially on the mission of making Jesus known because I'm looking ahead to that glorious resurrection that he experienced, or am I living for here and for now and what I can have? If I'm doing that, I'm living for myself. My confidence is in the life I can build. And Paul says there's no joy that you will ever experience like the joy you have living this life in light of eternity. We titled this sermon, The Surprising Key to Confidence, which according to the Bible is not to put confidence in myself, but it's rather to put my confidence in Jesus. His righteousness, not my own. His power to change me, not my own. And his purposes for me, not my own. If we live that way, Christian, there is a type of joy and an experiential reality of life, the likes of which cannot be compared to anything else. That is God's message for us. That is your Savior's calling on you, and that is his purposes for us as a church. Would you join me in praying that we would find joy in Christ exalted as the worship team comes back up. Father, we thank you so much for the privileges that you have given us, the, the vast majority of which I have to confess, even though I've been to school and studied theology, I don't think I understand I so resonate with that prayer in Ephesians chapter 1 where the Apostle Paul is simply praying that his, his hearers would get it, that we would understand how great a salvation you have worked for us because when we see your infinite worth is ultimately beautiful, we will pursue it above all things. And God, I pray that that would be true of me. I pray that that would be true of every member of this church to see you more for who you are, to trust that you are working and to live all out for you in great joy. So Father God, we pray that you would do that work in us, that your Spirit's power changing us would free us from our desire for comfort, free us from our aversion to risk, free us from the small visions that we have and the selfishnesses with which we approach our relationships to see the great purposes that you have. You died in order to give us life, a life that culminates in heaven but starts now. And as we come to the communion table now, we celebrate not only that death, but we celebrate the life that it gives us. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen.